Um, now we're going to get to the sermon, so let's pray. Lord, we thank you that your words are powerful, that you, it, it, when they go out, they do not return until you're, uh, the, uh, they, they do not return empty, but until it's, it's fulfilled. And we pray that your will, um, with your power will be done right now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And if you can keep your Bibles open to Ephesians chapter 4, verses 17 and on until 5, 4. Well, Paul wrote this letter about 2,000 years ago, but the, it doesn't take that much to modernize this, this text to us. I think all we need to do is really play, replace the word Gentiles in the very beginning with wherever you're from. So replace that word with Americans or New Zealanders or Kiwis or, um, oh no, they're, they're the same thing, um, Aussies, <laughs> um, Hong Kongers. Really, that's what it takes, I think. So look at verse 17. So I tell you this, insist on it on the Lord, in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Americans, Brits, Kiwis, Chinese, Hong Kongers do, in the futility of their thinking. I'm going to focus just now. We're all Hong Kongers here. Hong Kongers are darkened in their understanding and separated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their heart, due to the hardening of their hearts. Having lost all sensitivity, they have given themselves over to, over to sensuality so as to indulge in every kind of impurity with continual lust for more. Well, hardened hearts, loss of sensitivity, we do see the reality of this daily, don't we? I was enraged just a couple of, I think it's just about a month ago, I couldn't finish watching this clip of CCTV taken in Foshan City in southern China. A little girl was being uh, was chasing something when a truck ran over her, and the driver just sped by without checking to see if she was alive. And for the next seven minutes, she lay there, dying on the street, until the second truck came and ran over her too. And that truck also sped by her. The girl died in about a week. And the resident of the city told um, Shanghai Daily, the girl's parents, that, that the girl's parents deserve the blame because they are resp- responsible for taking the care of their own kids. And I thought to myself, really, just the parents? And the article on the paper concluded by quoting a professor who simply commented, people are becoming selfish. And I thought, what an understatement of human depravity. It is true that people are selfish, but the fact that 17 people walked by watching this girl dying and two cars ran over her without stopping, that's, just, that's not just selfishness. That's hardened hearts. That's loss of sensitivity. And we actually see this throughout the history. This isn't a modern occurrence. It has happened again and again. And this is a trite example, but six million Jews were killed during the Holocaust. Six million. In, in, in the most atrocious way, six million is two million more than everybody that lives in New Zealand. Two million more than everybody that lives in New Zealand. 
genocide didn't just happen in Europe. It happened in Asia, Africa, South America, all around. And yet, people still underestimate our sinfulness. People cheat each other. Greed is institutionalized. It's institutionally justified, I think, in these days. Sex industry is as big as it has ever been. Goddess Venus exists in the posters of scantily clad models all around us. Plutus, goddess of wealth, still exists. And these gods have changed their names, but they still exist. And as Tom Wright says, these idols, these idols demand their sacrifice. And it seems that we are very happy to give in to their demands. And how did the world get this way? And our text explains some of it. There are a couple of because uh, in between verses 17 and 19, because and due to, and it seems to point to one thing, hardening of hearts, hardening of hearts. Paul seems to say that our because our heart, hearts were hardened, that it led to, um, to, to giving over to sensuality, indulging in every kind of impurity, which then led to loss of sensitivity, which then led to darkening of our understanding and futility of thinking, which then led to the conclusion, a separated life from God. Verse 18, the root cause was the hardened heart, which is a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Because many of the atheists out there think that it's the mind, darkened mind that comes first. It's because they say it's because they can't believe that there is a God in this world, that they act and behave in the way that they want to behave. Because Having God is intellectually untenable. We get to do what we like. But the Bible says it's the opposite. It says the decision of the will comes first, and then the darkened heart, uh, darkened mind, and futility of thinking. The vast majority of atheists decide against believing in God in their hearts to justify, to justify their behavior, and their minds follow their decision. This is Aldous Huxley, the famous humanist philosopher and the author of A Brave New World. I think he had an honest assessment of what went on. He wrote, I had motive for not wanting the world to have a meaning, consequently assumed that it had none, and was able, without any difficulty, to find satisfying reasons for this assumption. For myself, Philosophy of meaninglessness was, essential, was essentially an instrument of liberation, sexually, sexual and political. He said he had motive for the world not to have meaning, not to have God, and it didn't take him all that uh, a long time to justify his mind, he said. If there was no God and there's no meaning, he could do whatever he wants to do, like a fool that the psalmist talks about. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. And therefore, they saw, they saw no God. 
the decision of the heart leads to indulging of the senses, which then leads to the darkened understanding and separation from the life of God. So that's the rebellion of the world, and that's part of the reason why the world is the way it is. But how is it that the Christians live like this? People who are sitting here today might not think, oh, there is no God. In fact, that wasn't the Ephesians' problem either. But Paul still says in verse 17, So I tell you this and insist on it in the Lord, that you must no longer live as Gentiles do in the futility of their thinking. It wasn't the Ephesians' problem that they said there is no God. It was that they lived as Gentiles do, as other people do living as other Hong Kongers do. Life that's undifferentiated from the life of others. People who say that there is no God. It led to indulging of every kind of impurity and sensuality. And I just wonder if that, if that speaks to us. Indulging of every kind of impurity isn't just talking about things that happen in the red light districts and big cities. It includes all kinds of indulging in trivialities of life. The trivialities that fill our life and our mind. Sports, movies, sitcoms, advertisements, celebrities, gadgets, video games, clothes, TV dramas. They're all around us and we indulge in these trivialities and they distract us from thinking about God, don't they? When do we have time to think about God? About Christ, about heaven, about meaning, about life, eternity, glory. And when we do have time to think about these things, our thoughts are juvenile because we don't spend time thinking. We don't spend time praying. We don't spend time transforming our mind. Our sensitivity is lost, our mind darkened. Pleasure and enjoyment are not illegitimate, but when they become the focus of life, they distort and corrupt and harden and darken. No wonder we lose the sight of the glory of the riches, of the eternal things, and every blessing in the heavenly realm. No wonder that these things aren't real to us. But the trivialities are. But even as Paul asks us not to live our lives that way, others do in our cities, he certainly doesn't consider us one of the Gentiles, one of the Americans, Hong Kongers, or Gentile uh, here. The division that he puts on us, the Christians, and the rest of the world is very striking. The pronoun, the pronoun they occurs seven times in that little passage, 17 through 19. They, this is what they do. We're no longer Gentiles, no longer people who are separated from God, without hope and without God. We're, we were, remember, objects of wrath gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following the, its desires and thoughts. Remember the sermon, the, the passage um, uh, about a month ago in, in Ephesians 2, 3. This is what we were. And do you remember the but that came as well in 2, 4? But, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, 
even when we were dead in transgressions. It's deadly. It is deadly to live as the rest of the world does. Because the result is separated, separation from life of God, God the goodness himself. And we have to remind ourselves again and again of the terrible consequences of living for these trivialities, indulging our every senses. But also remember that we're no longer that. We have to remind ourselves again and again that we have a new life in Christ, that we're no longer part of the world, that God has set us aside, that he has given us new identities, that we've died and risen with Christ himself, that we have become Christians. So that's the ignorance of the old life. Perhaps we live like the rest of the rest of the world, but because maybe the teaching that we have received, now the second point, because of the teaching, not just that happens in the world, obviously the world does teach us to live in a certain way, but maybe perhaps the teaching that we've received in the church as well. I don't know if you've had this sort of teaching. People who say that the gospel is a very easy thing. It's really just one decision that you make without any consequences. In London, I had a a student who came to the Bible study I was leading who was just mad and angry with the church, and he ended up actually not coming back to the church because he he said that he felt betrayed, that it never taught him what it meant to be a Christian. They told him that Christianity is about life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, and by believing in him, that we have life eternal. And while that is all true, our faith in Christ is much bigger than intellectual ascent, isn't it? Following Jesus is much bigger than that. But he said this, the churches teach lies. They say this is a very easy thing, that once we believe in him, that's it. And he felt disillusioned and he left the church. What they didn't tell him that was that once he becomes a new person, he becomes a new person with new ethics, that his way of life has changed, that his old self became a former way of life, verse 22, that he must put on new self in Jesus Christ. Our faith in Jesus is a big concept. In fact, it entails a way of life, not just an intellectual ascent. Look what Paul says in verse 20. That, however, is not the way of life you learned when you heard about Christ and were taught in him. We must preach to one another. We must preach as a church Jesus' lordship. The kingdom, the rule of righteousness that he ushered in, and all the moral demands of the new life that is entailed in this new life. And the content of this new life, however, is Jesus Christ from the very beginning till the end. In fact, if you look at verse 21, when it says, when you heard about Christ, when you heard about, that's misleading translation because there is no about in Greek. It's when you heard him. Just as millions could say 
that through the voices of, of, of preaching, through Bible studies and their own reading, in their teaching to, from one another, they heard the voice of Christ through faithful teaching of Scripture. Not only did they, they heard the voice of Christ directly in this, but Jesus was the environment in which they heard this voice. Because he continues and, and, and says that they were taught in him. They were taught in Christ. And content of that teaching, too, was Christ. For they were taught accordance with the truth that is in Jesus. Jesus teaches us himself. He speaks to us himself. He teaches us in himself. And he teaches us about himself. The way of life is all about Jesus. All about who he is and what it means to follow him. In order to hear Jesus, we need not always to look for a voice from the cloud. What we need to do is to learn and to remember what we've learned. There are at least four references to learning here. Um, The way of life you learned in verse 20. When you heard about Christ. It's It's the thing that was taught and you heard and you were taught in him, in verse 21. You were taught. He emphasizes learning in verse 23 as well. We need to be made new in the attitude of our mind. It's a life of learning, transformation of our mind. If we're careful, we will hear God's voice in these teachings. Remember, the problem was distorted teaching, distorted reasoning, darkened mind, and we therefore need a wholesale restructuring of our mind. Restructuring of all that we've learned, all that we've thought was right, what is right and wrong, what the world teaches is right and wrong, the values that it holds dear. We need a wholesale restructuring of our mind. And don't think that this happens on your, by your own effort, only by your own effort, um, Paul emphasized in other places, in, uh, in chapter 1, 17 and 18, 3, 16 and 17, the role of the Holy Spirit in all of this. So you don't need to um, worry about our depraved minds repairing itself. That will not happen. The light of the gospel shows the channel along which we our thinking must run, the commentator writes. And the Spirit engages our spirit in reordering life. We must learn to think for ourselves along Christian lines. We must take time to think in communion with God, to reflect and meditate without attention to that interior life. That restructuring will not occur. Actually, this commentator says, we must go to the school of Christ. The truth is that too many claim to be a Christian without ever learning what it means to be a Christian. And that approach to faith is, at the end, useless. And others reach a plateau of respectability and go no further. But without learning, growth stops. Our worship will shrivel, not just on Sundays, but in our worship of life each day. The hunger for knowledge of Christ 
should be ever-present and ever-renewing. But we don't do this by ourselves. Look at verse 23. Verse 23. To be made new in the attitude of our, uh, attitude of your mind and to put on the new self created to be like God in true righteousness and holiness. In verse 24, that, there's that word created. All is done in the union of Christ the one to whom we're joined, and we're created. God creates us and enables us, and his spirit is the agent of renewal. But salvation is totally the work of God, but it's the work of salvation totally involves us as well. And that alone justifies, just, does justice to what it means to be in Christ, to ask the question, how much of it is done in our own effort, and how much of it is done in God, in God's, um, God's, uh, through God's Spirit, is to uh, is 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 a wrong question. God totally involves us in God's salvation. So conversion, from our perspective, is not just one decision that we make. It's a process that we're being made new in the in the renewing of the attitude of our minds. As Martin Luther urged, we daily return to our baptism. Christian living requires continually putting off our old self and continually putting on Christ daily. And um, as, I talk, as I think about this, I, I think um, there might be a temptation for perfectionism. And I want to preach against that as well. The bad news is that we just won't be perfect we live in a fallen world. I mean, it's just going to the mall, I think, reminds us. Because malls are like cathedrals of capitalism. It encourages consumerism and greed. Pornography is so easily accessible now. The work, in the, the work, um, work culture encourages pride and self-promotion. The Western dominance has also promoted rampant individualism and selfishness. And the fact is, we don't yet live in glorified bodies. We will fall. And we will continue to need God's forgiveness. But this rejection of perfectionism cannot serve as an excuse, as an excuse for dealing lightly with sin. As people who are recreated in Christ, we must put that self on daily. And finally, this is a lofty teaching, but Paul doesn't end with uh, theology. Theology is connected to ethics. So Paul ends this letter with practical instructions. And I think uh, this final section doesn't need bridging in themselves, but rather it just requires obedience. But as we obey, we must understand that Paul is not advocating legalism, but he's telling us the life of Christ, the way of Christ, the life, and that life is full of content. And um, a couple of things as we remember, uh, as we look to the next section. This um, uh, command... Um, to be holy and righteous doesn't concern ourselves just with God 
our relations with God, but it, really, it, 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 it extends to the realm of uh, the, our relationship with other people. You cannot be good in a vacuum. You can only be good in the reality of life, in the lived life on the earth. So, and secondly, we must remember that actually putting off our old self by itself isn't enough. That we must also put on the new self. It's balanced with that. And so, it's, um, so first, we'll just go through the list um, together. Look to verse 25. We're to put off, the ne- put off a falsehood and not lie. Speak truthfully. And what Paul says is here that um, it's because we're all members of one body. Fellowship is built on trust, and trust is built on, on, on truth. Falsehood undermines this fellowship, while truth strengthens it. So we must not lie. We must put off the falsehood and put on truth. And in verse 26, we aren't to, we aren't to sin in our anger. And give foothold to devil. I'm sure you know from experience, it's never safe to leave anger overnight. It's never safe to allow embers to smolder. There is room for righteous anger, but it isn't, um, it's so easy to sin in our anger. So Paul, um, so we must not, we must be careful not to sin in our anger. And Paul um, says in verse 28 that he asks Ephesians not to steal. Not to steal, but rather they must work. And the reason he gives is also relational. He says we must work not for our selfish enjoyment, fruits of our labor, but so that we could share with those who are in need. And in verse 29, he continues to warn us to watch our mouths from unwholesome talk. They say the pen is mightier than the sword, but also the words are sharper than swords as well. We can either build each other up or hurt one another with words. We're encouraged to talk that builds up one another. And if you jump to verse 31, he gives us another list there. Paul continues with the attitude of our hearts especially anger and malice. He says, get rid of all the bitterness, all bitterness, rage and anger and brawling. In this text, shouting uncontrollably or slandering, saying bad things about one another, intending to hurt. And every malice, we are to shed these characteristics. But not only that, we are then to put on kindness and compassion. We are to forgive one another as Christ forgive us. And finally, we're told in uh, chapter 5, verse 1, to shed sexual immorality or any other kind of impurity or greed. They're improper for God's saints. Obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse jokes are out of place as well. Our lips are supposed to be filled with thanksgiving, he says. So, here's a list of things to do. And I've skipped it so far, but at the heart of it are these two things. Chapter 4, verse 30. The injunction not to grieve the Holy Spirit. Our ethics stem from our personal relationship with God himself. 
through the Spirit. When we sin, it's not just our conscience that we grieve. It's not just the other people that we hurt. When we sin, it grieves the Holy Spirit who lives within us. It concerns that relationship, our relationship with God. So it is essentially, Christian ethic is essentially relational. But it's also reflective as well. So chapter 5, verse 1, he says, Be imitators of God. Follow God's examples. He says, Just as the moon reflects the light of the sun, we are to reflect Christ. We're not to conjure up the energy and the power to do these things from our own resources. We are to dwell on the fragrant offering and sacrifice of Christ himself and follow then his example. We are God's new new society of people who put off our old self and put on the new. And that is what God has made us already. So we need to recall this daily by the renewal of our minds, remembering what we've learned from Christ, the truth that is in Jesus, and thinking Christianly about our status, our life. And then we must activate and cultivate these virtues in our life. For holiness is not just a condition that we drift into. We're not passive spectators of God's sanctifying work. We are purposefully to put away all the, all the conduct that is incompatible with new life. Life in Christ and put on the new lifestyle that is compatible with Christ. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you for the teaching of your word. And we pray that we will not indulge in our trivialities of life, indulging in every senses. But Lord, we will put aside time to think about who you are. And we pray that in our daily meditations, the realities of the new life will be much more real the blessings of the heavenly realm will become much more real to our lives, that we may rejoice in you, that we may rejoice in putting off our old self and putting on the new self. And we pray that the creative work that is already done in Christ will work mightily in our daily lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.